Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, welcome to Back to the Future, the church edition. We're back in 2020 doing virtual church all over again. Uh, but thankfully, it's just a one-off occurrence this time. As next Sunday, we'll be back together in person at Sullivan High School. Uh, there's a big uh, power outage in the neighborhood and the building was shut down for the weekend this weekend, so we couldn't meet in person. But next week, we will be back. And it's a really special Sunday in the life of our church. It is our 11 year anniversary celebration. And so we'd love to have you join us. We're also gonna do an in we're gonna do a, a church survey um, in the service, toward the end of the service, uh, to, to kind of collect some information, and help us shape the future of our church. We're looking forward to what God has for us in the coming years and we wanna hear from you. And so we need your input. So be there for the church survey. And then after service, we're gonna have a great potluck to celebrate all that God has done over the course of the 11 years in our church being together. I'll have JB Alberto's pizza uh, brought in and then bring a side dish to share. Bring something special that you, uh, that your, your, your specialty, bring it in so we can enjoy it all together. So looking forward to being back together in person again next Sunday at Sullivan. Come on out. Now, if you've got a Bible this morning, you can turn to Colossians chapter one or Colossians chapter three, Colossians chapter three, verses 23 to 24. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Now last week, Phil introduced a little mini-series we're doing at the start of this new year called uh, Worthy of Your Life. Worthy of Your Life. And in this series, we're looking at the reality that Christ is worthy of every part of our lives. He's worthy of the whole of who we are and all that we do. And we asked you uh, a couple months ago to choose what topics you wanted us to cover in these three weeks. What were things that were significant to you to think about Christ being worthy of all of your life? And... Uh, the, there were over 80 of you who submitted votes, votes, and the winners in order were rest, work, and gratitude. Last week, Phil set us up with rest. Uh, today, we're going to look at the concept of work. And next week, very appropriately, on our 11-year anniversary celebration, we're going to talk about gratitude. Now, our primary text today, as we look at this question of work, is Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And let me read it for us. We'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Says, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for, your, for the scriptures that speak to every part of our lives. The reality is that you are worthy of everything. You made us, everything we have comes from you. You're worthy of everything. And today, as we talk about work, which takes up, uh, which is such a significant part of our lives, would you help us to think about it in light of your story, help us to understand better who you are and where we fit and where our work fits and what you'd have for us. So we ask that you would speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by borrowing a little thought experiment from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue. McIntyre asks you to imagine that you're standing at a bus stop and you're waiting for a bus to come. And as you're standing there waiting for this bus, a young man who you don't recognize, who to your knowledge you've never seen before in your life, this young man walks up to you and he asks you a rather strange question. He says, well, he makes a rather strange assertion. He says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. You are, of course, when you hear this, you are, of course, deeply confused. Like, what's going on here? And how do you go about making sense of what's just happened and what this young man has done? Well, there's only one way you can do it. There's only one possibility to understand this. And that one possibility is to tell yourself a story. This event, this happening, this occurrence, this strange event has to fit within a broader story. And what is the story with this young man? Well, it's possible that the young man is mentally ill, in which case your response might be to call for help, call someone to help, help him. 
It's also possible that yesterday this young man was in a library and someone who looked very similar to you, same build, same general appearance, came up to him and asked him the question, hey, do you happen to know the, the, name of the, uh, the, the Latin name of the common wild duck? Do you happen to have that information? That would explain it. And then, and then this instance, this event that you've just experienced would therefore be just a simple case of mistaken identity. No big deal. Or what if this young man, what if he happens to be a spy? And to quote Alistair McIntyre, he's waiting at a prearranged rendezvous point and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. What if that's the story? Well, if that's the case, if that's the story, then you need to be very, very careful how you respond right now. Now, McIntyre uses this little thought experiment to make this point. Getting the story right makes all the difference. If you get the story wrong, then your response is going to be wrong. Now today, our topic is work. And what is the story of work? What's the right story of work? Most of us spend upwards of a third of our lives working. Work is likely the singular activity you spend more time doing than anything else other than possibly sleeping in life. And based on the results of this, uh, this little poll that we did on these, in the sermon series, uh, and the fact that you picked rest by far as the number one topic in the series, it seems likely to me that many of us are likely working more than we are sleeping. And that begs the question, for something that occupies such a significant portion of your life, what is the story of work? Because if we get the story of work wrong, then our response to work, our approach to work, the way we go about our work is, like, is likewise also going to be wrong. Now, culturally, there are two prevailing stories when it comes to work. The first is a story that I think was probably more prominent maybe 15 to 20 years ago, but is still very much uh, common today. And it's epitomized in a 1999 cult classic film called Office Space. I imagine some of you have seen it. Well, in the movie, Peter Gibbons works, as an, and works an office job as a programmer. And he doesn't like his job. He's, he's updating code for the, the Y2K switch. And he doesn't like his job. And he goes out to lunch with this waitress named Joanna, who's played by Jennifer Aniston. And, and she asks him about his job. And he says, uh, I, uh, I don't like my job. And I, um, I don't think I'm going to go anymore. And Joanna responds, uh, you're, you're just not going to go? Yeah. Won't you get fired? I, I don't know, but I really don't like it. And uh, I don't think I'm going to go. I'm not going to go. So you're going to quit? No, not really. Uh, uh, just going to stop going. Well, it's comical, but what's the story around work in that scene? Well, the story, you could sum it up by saying work sucks. Work sucks. At best, work is a necessary evil. It's a way to pay the bills. It's a way to make money to do the things you actually like doing. Or work is a duty. It's something you have to do, but you don't really ever want to do. And if you could just stop doing it, then you certainly would. And that's one cultural story. Now, the second cultural story, which is much more prominent right now, I think, and especially in a, in a global city, in a city like Chicago, this other story is kind of the polar opposite of that one. And this story says not that work sucks, but rather that work is everything. Work is ultimate. Work is the best thing. And this story is epitomized in the modern office, which includes a gourmet cafeteria and ping pong tables and nap pods and all kinds of other amenities encouraged you, encouraging you to live in the office 24 hours a day. And in this story, work is what defines you. You are your job. You are what you do. You are your company. And work is everything in your life. So work sucks. Work is everything. Those are the two stories that are offered to us by our culture. But 
Is either of those stories the right story about work? Well, this morning, I want to offer you a third story. And this third story is the story that the Bible tells us about work. And my contention today is that the story the Bible tells better explains and better motivates work than either of those two cultural options. The story of the Bible better explains and better motivates work than any other story you're going to find anywhere else. It is a better story for work. Start with me at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning of the Bible. Find that in your scriptures right now. The very first verse of the Bible reads like this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what is God doing here at the beginning? God is creating, which tells us that God is a creative. He is the creator, the original creator. And this is his work, which means that the Bible starts with a picture of God working. And as God works, there's a refrain that runs through Genesis chapter 1. And do you know what that refrain is? If you look closely, after God makes something, he looks at it and he sees that it is good. It is good. Six times in Genesis 1 alone, the scripture tells us that God saw that what he has made and it is good. And at the very end of Genesis 1, in verse 31, God looks at everything he has made and the, sum, the summary statement is, behold, it was very good. So God works and God's work is good. He makes good things. And then if you go to Genesis chapter 2, the next page in your Bible, in verse 15, God takes the first man, he creates our, our first father, Adam, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to do what? What does it say there? It says to work it and keep it. Now this is Genesis 2. This is the second chapter of the Bible. This is before sin enters the world, before the curse, before anything goes wrong. And what does God give Adam here? He gives him a job. In the good world that God has made, Adam has work to do. And his job is to take care of God's garden. Now, theologians call this, this, this original um, presentation of work and, and God's design for work, they call it the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate. See, God makes people in his image and he gives to humanity dominion or responsibility to care for his good world. We are put into the world to be gardeners of God's good world. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, his great book on work, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller explains what this gardening role means, what it does mean, and what it does not mean. On the one hand, it does not mean that we are to be simple park rangers. Like if you've ever been to a national park, you've done backcountry hiking, you've seen signs that say, leave no trace, leave no trace. And that is the job of a park ranger, to preserve things exactly as they are to protect the environment, make sure nothing gets disturbed, to leave no trace. But that's not the job of a gardener. On the other hand, it also does not mean that we are to be mere road pavers. Like I have a friend who in a very condescending Chicagoan kind of way, jokes that it would be better if we just went ahead and paved the entire state of Indiana and turned it into a parking lot. Now, my wife is from Indiana, and I happen to like the state of Indiana. I think Indiana, and at least in some places, is a quite beautiful state. And it would be a travesty to just pave over the entire state. Like, maybe we could pave over West Lafayette or, or some other part of the state, but we don't need to do the whole thing, right? Like, the state is pretty beautiful in a lot of places. And that's not what a gardener does. A gardener doesn't just pave over the landscape. No, our job is not to be park rangers, and our job is not to be road pavers. Our job is to be gardeners. And what does a gardener do? Well, a gardener takes the good material that God has given her, 
And she cares for that material, for that garden, to develop it and to make it more fruitful and more beautiful and more enjoyable, both for the sake of the garden itself and for the sake of all those who will come and experience the garden. And that's the work God has given to us in this world, to be gardeners of the various spaces and places and the gifts and abilities and the resources and all that God has entrusted to us. We are gardeners. Now, a few years ago, I read a book titled Culture Making by Andy Crouch. It's a great book that's all about this work of gardening in God's good world. And one of the stories that Crouch tells in Culture Making is about his wife, Catherine, and how she lives out this cultural mandate in her work as a physics professor. And this is what he writes. He says, in her work as a professor of physics, Catherine can do much to shape the culture of her courses and of her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to exciting and disappointing results. She can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and fitful procrastination. By bringing her children with her to work occasionally, she can create a culture where family is not an interruption from work and where research and teaching are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting her students into our home, she can show that she values them as persons, not just as units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, Catherine has real ability to reshape the world. See, Catherine Crouch is a gardener in her lab and with her students. And God has placed you in your cubicle or at your register or behind your laptop or in your kitchen or wherever you do your work. He's placed you there to garden that space and to garden the people who are in it. And this is a good opportunity here for some self-reflection. How are you doing as a gardener right now? How are you doing as a gardener right now? Like you may not be in charge of an entire research lab, but you've got some ability to shape some small portion of the world. Are you caring for and developing and nurturing the people and the spaces that God has entrusted to you? How's your garden? How's your garden? Now, I think that what all of us desire is a story of work that's like Catherine's. But the reality is that that's not always how it goes in our work. A movie like Office Space resonates because sometimes work does suck. Sometimes work is really frustrating and difficult, and you just don't want to go anymore. Like sometimes gardening is not a walk in the park. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis 3, we see how the Bible explains the many problems we encounter in work. In Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin and they rebel against God. They turn their backs on God and reject him. And when they do, this rupture occurs in God's good world. And that rupture affects literally everything in creation, including work. And so this is Genesis 3, 17 and 19. This is the particular part of the curse that applies to the, the, the area of work. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. God says to Adam these words. He says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now here, after the fall, after sin enters the story, 
What characterizes work? Well, it's pain and sweat and thorns and thistles. In a fallen world, work will be like going off the trail and getting scraped up in the brush. In other words, work is going to be hard. Work is going to be hard. In your work, you will have cruel bosses and you will have obnoxious coworkers. You will be assigned more than you can possibly get done in a day. You will lose sleep and you will be stressed out. You will produce something and have it torn to shreds by your manager. You'll create a new product and you'll see it die in the marketplace. You'll train for a competition and you'll get injured before it happens. You'll study for an exam and you'll fail the test. You'll be lifting something heavy and you'll hurt your back. You'll prepare a sermon and you'll organize a Sunday gathering only to have a winter storm knock out the power and send you back to 2020 all over again. Thorns and thistles. This is what characterizes our work. Now, my father, my dad, he had two uncles when he was growing up. And one of those uncles was his uncle Don. And Uncle Don played football in the NFL and actually coached the Baltimore Colts to a victory in Super Bowl V. He was a phenomenal football player and coach. Then his other uncle, his uncle Dell, Dell was actually an even better athlete when he was growing up. But Dell was older and World War II interfered with his athletic career. And so instead of going to college on a football scholarship, he went off to war and fought in World War II instead. And then when he came back from the war, he got a job working in an aluminum manufacturing plant. And that job was a good job. It, he, he worked hard and he did well in it. But one day as he was loading a roll of aluminum onto a truck, that roll of aluminum rolled off the bed of the truck and it crushed him to death and took his life. And then Don, the star football player, who after winning the Super Bowl became the head coach of the Detroit Lions, Don was coaching the Lions and he was so stressed out by his work that he was cutting the grass at his house one day and he had a heart attack that killed him. Now, I don't mean to be dramatic, but those are the kinds of things that work does to us. Tim Keller sums it up like this. He says, work, even when it bears fruit, like even when you're successful, even when you're at the top of your game, even when it goes really, really well, work, even when it bears fruit, is always painful, often miscarries, and sometimes kills us. That's the curse. That is work in a fallen world. And so when you come to the end of Genesis 3, you have both the beauty and the brokenness of creation and of work itself. Work is good, but work is hard. We were made to work and work sometimes will kill us. And those themes of both blessing and curse, of beauty and brokenness, those themes run through the rest of the Bible and the rest of the human history into each of our own individual stories. This is all of our experience with work. And if we each turn to the people around us right now, if you pause this and you just talk to the people in the room with you right now, we could all tell stories from our work of how we've experienced both of those realities. And so this is our story. And yet this is not where the story ends because the story of the Bible does not end with brokenness, rather it ends in redemption and restoration. And the major turning point in the story comes with the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. Now Jesus is obviously best known today for his works of for his work in ministry, for his teaching, for his healing and service to others, and ultimately for his death and resurrection. And it's right that we know him for that. That's the main point. But what is recorded about Jesus in the Gospels comes almost entirely from just the last few years of Jesus's life. And prior to that, he spent around 30 years of his life not doing vocational ministry. And do you know what his job was for most of those years? He was a builder. 
He worked in construction with his dad. Now, it's striking when you think about it that in Genesis, God is pictured as a gardener. And then in the New Testament, God is pictured as a carpenter. Like all throughout the Bible, God works in physical labor. On this note, writer Philip Jensen poses an interesting question. He says, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Bible come into the world? He comes as a carpenter. See, despite the pain and the sweat and the thorns and the thistles, Jesus' life dignifies work, in particular physical work. Like if you work in a trade, if you've got a job where you do manual labor all day long, you're in really good company. And then the final years of Jesus' life, Jesus continued to work. His work changed to ministry, but he still had work to do. In John 4, 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' life was all about doing the work of his heavenly father. And he taught and he healed and he ultimately died on the cross to do that work. And on the cross, as he breathed his dying breath, do you remember his famous last words? It is finished. My work is finished. He had literally given his life to the work of God and it cost him his life. And yet that wasn't the end for Jesus. Because he had been faithful to his father's work throughout his perfect life and sacrificial death, on the third day, his father raised him from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul reflects on the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And he talks about the reality that just as Jesus died and rose again, so too will all who believe in him. And then he finishes his masterful treatment of the resurrection with these powerful words. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So be like Jesus and do God's work in the world. Why? This is how the verse finishes. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. You see, what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection gives us an assurance that though the work we do now may be difficult and painful, it is never in vain. Our work actually matters in the world. And that is certainly true of ministry work, but it's equally true of all our efforts to garden in God's good world. Dick Lucas was an English Anglican preacher, and he once made an important observation about the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. Now, if you know that story, you know that Joseph's job was to be a government official. That was what he got paid to do. And yet God used Joseph in a really powerful way. He used him to help save the entire known part of the world from a great famine through his expertise in governing. And now we still talk about him today because of that work that he did. And on this point, Lucas said that if you were to go to a book table at church, or uh, say you go to a Christian bookstore or something, or you go on Amazon, you look for Christian books, and you see a biography with the title, The Man God Uses, or The Woman God Uses, you see that title. What would you think the book is about? Who would be the subject? Well, likely what we'd think of would be a pastor, or a missionary, or a church leader of some sort. And yet Joseph didn't work in ministry. Joseph was just a highly successful secular official. He had a government job and he did it with excellence. And this is Lucas's observation. He says, in the long term, 
I think being, and, and he was a preacher. Dick Lucas is writing this, was, was a minister. And he says, in the long term, I think being a preacher, a missionary, leading a Bible study group in many ways is easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. And what we should be doing day to day in, in ministry, it's, it's in some ways easier to discern. It's more black and white, not so gray. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men and women in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, in the arts, in whatever your career is. This is the great shortfall today. And you need to know today that whatever your job is, whatever you get paid to do, whatever your work is, or even you don't get paid, you work in the home, if you're a primary caregiver, if that's your job, Whatever your job is, God can use you too. God can use you too. To make disciples, yes. To share the gospel with the people around you, yes. To lead a Bible study in your office, yes. You can do all those things. Those ministry things matter. Yes, absolutely. But God can also use you to do great work. To make things that make this world better. To serve the people around you and make their lives better to care for your clients or your customers or your direct reports, to develop faithful and creative solutions to the problems in your profession, to bring integrity and beauty and character and creativity into your workplace and into the world. Like your work matters and God can use you in your work. And because Jesus has risen, in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Now, the final scene in the story of the Bible happens at the end of the book of Revelation. The Bible begins in Genesis, as we saw, in a garden. And yet, what's the setting at the end of the book of Revelation? It's no longer a garden. Now it's a city. And so the Bible starts in a garden, and it ends in a city. And what's the difference between those two places, between a garden and a city? What's the difference? Well, both are cultivated places where people have left their mark on the land. And yet the city itself is much more full of culture. In a city, you've got people and language and food and music and art and sport and business. You've got all of that culture. In a city like Chicago, there is human ingenuity and creativity on display everywhere you look. A city is a place where the cultural mandate finds a full expression. And that happens both for good and for evil. Like in cities, you get all the best and all the worst of what humanity can do. You get a critical mass of all of it. You get all of it in the city. We get the best food and the best music and the best architecture. But we also get crime and corruption and guns and gangs, and we get death and decay on scale. There's a lot of all of it, sometimes too much of all of it. But at the end of the story of the Bible, and at the end of history, we will indeed find ourselves in a city. And yet in that city... Revelation tells us there will be no tears, no death, no mourning, no pain, no night, no darkness. The world will be set right once and for all. The curse will be undone and everything sad will come untrue. And God, who's on his throne, will say in the words of Revelation 21.5, Behold, I'm making all things new. And in that new city... Revelation tells us in chapter 21, verse 23, there will be no need of sun or moon to shine on the city for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb who's Jesus. By its light will the nations walk and hear these words and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you know what that means? 
The glory of a nation is the best things produced out of that nation. It's the best food, the best music, the best dance, the best writing, the best design, the best architecture, the best fashion, the best of everything. And in eternity, the kings of the, kings of the nations bring their glory into the eternal city. There's a parade where the best of the nations is brought into the eternal city. See, all the culture that has been created, minus all the sin that has corrupted it, will be part of life eternal. It'll be Chicago with all the best parts and none of the bad parts. And do you know how all that good stuff gets made? It is through people like you and me who work. Now, a few years ago, I read a short story from J.R.R. Tolkien titled Leaf by Niggle. And Tolkien wrote this story uh, in, the, in the lead up to World War II. Tolkien himself had fought in World War I and had seen the horrors of that war. And it, it gave him this, uh, this vision of writing a series like what became The Lord of the Rings. And as Tolkien was working on The Lord of the Rings, he found himself being stuck. Like He, he put tons and tons of time into this project, but he just couldn't, couldn't finish it. He couldn't get done with it. He was, he was stuck. And in the midst of his being stuck, in the dark days leading up to World War II, Tolkien wrote this story, Leaf by Niggle. And he titled it Leaf by Niggle because the main character's name was Niggle, N-I-G-G-L-E. And a niggle was someone who would do something in an ineffectual way. It was someone who would, who would work but not get a whole lot done. And, and Tolkien named the main character Niggle because that's what characterized Niggle's life. Niggle was an artist. He was a painter by trade. But he wasn't a very effective painter. And the dream of his life, he had this, this vision of painting this, this glorious tree. And he bought this huge canvas, a, a canvas that filled his whole workshop. And, and he, he brought ladders in that he could climb the ladders in order, to, in order to paint his canvas. And he sketched out this tree that he dreamt of in his mind. He had a, had a vision of what this tree would become. And he worked for many, many years working on this tree, trying to, trying to make it what he saw in his mind's eye. But often he'd get started on his work and he'd get pulled away by some other task. He was a niggle after all. He was ineffectual. And so he'd get, and a neighbor would ask him to help with something and he'd lose a whole day helping with this task. Or there'd be a meeting in town that he'd have to go to. Or he'd have, have something else he had to attend to. And he, he never made much progress. In fact, his whole life working on this tree, he only ever got one solitary leaf completed. He finished one leaf out of the entire tree. And as a result, he was a laughingstock in town. People, people made fun of him because he, he couldn't get anything done. They'd say, Nickel, you're working on your tree, but you don't, you don't ever finish it. You don't ever do anything. It's, your work is ineffective. It doesn't matter. And one day, Nickel leaves for his final journey. And his final journey in the story is a euphemism for death. And Nickel enters into what we know is the afterlife. And he's sad as he does because he never finished his tree. He feels like he was a failure. He failed in his life's work. He didn't get it done. And as he's exploring his new country, as he's journeying through the afterlife and he's, he's seeing the landscape, he pulls up to a property. He comes to a property on this train. He gets off the train. He looks at this property. And as, as he's looking out in the distance in his new country, he looks up and there he sees a tree. And this is what Tolkien writes. Tolkien says, before Nagel stood the tree, his tree, finished. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he had imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and many that might have budded if only he had had time. And Niggle rejoices. 
See, Nigel sees the tree he always dreamed of creating, and it's his tree, and yet his tree is real, and it's even better than he dreamed. Now, what's the point of the story? The point is this. There really is a tree. There really is a tree. For all the beauty and all the brokenness of life and work, for all the dreams and all the despair, for all the blessing and all the curse, in the end, there really is a tree. Your work really matters. Your work really matters. And so what does all of this mean for how we approach our work today? Well, I want to finish this morning by taking us back to where we started. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In light of the Bible's better story of work, here are four final practical exhortations for your work today. One, work, work. Paul gives a command in verse 23. He commands us to work. And in light of the story of the Bible, we know that work is good. We were made to work and we are commanded to work. Your work might be in the home or out of the home, it might be blue collar or white collar. It might be full-time or part-time or volunteer or homemaking. There are infinite varieties of work, but so long as you are able, work work. Two, work hard. Work hard. Whatever you do, Paul says, work heartily. The word translated heartily is the word translated soul elsewhere in the New Testament. And something done from your soul is something done from the whole of your being. It is, it is to put your whole self into it. And that means that whatever your work is, do your work well with excellence, with effort, with your heart in it. In short, work hard. Work hard. Three, work confidently. Work confidently. In verse 24, Paul gives the reason why we ought to work and to work hard. And it is because we know that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a child of God. And you are an heir of all that belongs to him. And you stand to inherit everything that is rightly his. You see, there will be a right reward for every earthly effort. No good work will go unrewarded in the end. Or to put it another way, hard work will pay off. And while the Bible does not promise that reward this side of eternity, it does promise that reward. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There really is a tree. And so work confidently. Work confidently. And finally, number four, work for the Lord work for the Lord. When the apostles left their nets to follow Jesus, it didn't mean that they never fished again. It just meant that they had a higher purpose in life than merely fishing. When the apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys, he didn't only ever do ministry. He sometimes worked as a tent maker to pay the bills or to be in proximity to real people. These early believers didn't necessarily stop their secular work, but their relationship to work fundamentally changed. They no longer worked for men or for themselves or to make money or to get wealthy or to be successful. Rather, they worked for the Lord. They had a higher purpose and a greater calling. And that higher purpose and that greater calling meant that they could do any kind of work and bring honor and glory to God by doing it. 
As N.C. Wright puts it, the task that you're doing, the task of the work itself, the task may appear unimportant or trivial, but the person doing it is never that. And he or she has the opportunity to turn that job into an act of worship. Your work, whatever it is, fishing or tent making or programming or teaching or nursing or producing or manufacturing or parenting or building or selling, your work, whatever it is, your work can be an act of worship because you and whatever you do can work for the Lord. So work, work hard, work confidently, and work for the Lord. Now in the final line of Colossians 3, 24, Paul sums up his teaching here with what is actually a command. That command likely isn't reflected in your English translations. It's not reflected in what I just read a moment ago, but it's there in the Greek. And most, trans- most commentators agree that it ought to be translated as a command. And what Paul says here in this final line of verse 24 sums up the Bible story of work. Serve the Lord Christ. Serve the Lord Christ. This is the only time in the New Testament that these two titles are brought together about without the name Jesus being explicitly mentioned. And Paul does that for a reason. He's reminding us of two twin realities about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. He is the creator and the maker of all that there is. And it is he who rules and reigns over all that he made. He sits on the throne of heaven and throned as king now and forever. He is the boss of all bosses. And for that reason, when you work, you do not work for your boss or for your company. When you work, you work for him. He is ultimately in charge. He is Lord. And yet, at the very same time, he is also the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And he stepped off of his throne and into our history. And in his own words, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many which is why he took a manual labor job and got his hands dirty and his muscles sore and why he mixed it up with the masses of people and all of their problems and why he spent his life helping and healing those who were in need and why ultimately he went to the cross and was crucified and died and was buried. See, Jesus the Lord became Jesus the Christ and as the Christ, Jesus gave his life to serve you, to offer you life, to provide you a place in God's family with an eternal reward. That was his life's work. See, in his work, he served you, and now it's your turn. In your work, serve Christ. That's the story the Bible tells about work. In your work, serve Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this true and better story. The story of the Bible, which is the best story and the truest story there is. It's the real story of life. And today we got this privilege to look at the real story of work. And I pray that as we inhabit that story, you would help us to live out this picture of work, to be great gardeners of your good world, to endure the thorns and thistles and the trials that come with work, to be faithful to do what you've called us to do, to tend to the soil, to cultivate the ground around us, and to produce beautiful, fruitful things for your glory. Help us to work to work hard, to work confidently, and to work for you. And in all that we do, would we be people who serve you? We pray that in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Church, we'll see you next Sunday, back in person at Sullivan for our 11-year anniversary. God bless.